The praise that Noah is accorded is unparalleled anywhere in Tanakh. He was, says the Torah, a righteous man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. No such praise is given to Abraham or Moses or any of the prophets. The only person in the Bible even to come close is Job, described as blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Noah is in fact the only individual in the whole of Tanakh described as a tzaddik, as a righteous individual. Yet the man we see at the end of his life isn't the person we saw at the beginning. After the flood, we read, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Yafet took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they couldn't see their father naked. So the man of God has become a man of the soil. The upright man has become a drunkard. The man clothed in virtue now lies naked and unashamed. The man who saved his family from the flood is now so undignified that two of his sons are ashamed to look at him. This is a tale of decline. Why? Noah is the classic case of someone who's righteous but not a leader. In a disastrous age, when all had been corrupted, when the world was filled with violence, when even God himself, in the most poignant line in the whole Torah, regretted that he had made man on earth and was pained to his very core, Noah alone justified God's faith in humanity, the faith that led him to create mankind in the first place. That's an immense achievement, and nothing should detract from it. Noah is, after all, the man through whom God made a covenant with all humanity. Noah is to humanity what Abraham is to the Jewish people. Noah was a good man in a bad age, but his influence on the life of his contemporaries was apparently zero. That is implicit in God's statement, you alone have I found righteous in this whole generation. It's implicit also in the fact that only Noah and his family, together with the animals, were saved. It's reasonable to assume that these two facts, Noah's righteousness and his lack of influence on his contemporaries, are actually intimately related. Noah preserved his virtue by separating himself from his environment. That's how, in a world gone mad, he stayed sane. The famous debate among the sages as to the, whether the phrase tamim hayab perfect in his generations, is praise or criticism, may well be related to this. Some say that perfect in his generations means only relative to the low standard then prevailing. Had he lived in the generation of Abraham, they said, he would have been insignificant. Others said the opposite. If in a wicked generation Noah was righteous, how much greater he would have been with role models like Abraham. The argument, it seems to me, turns on whether Noah's isolation was part of his character, he was a loner, or merely a necessary tactic in that time and place. If he was naturally a loner, then he wouldn't have gained by the presence of heroes like Abraham. He would have been impervious to influence, whether for good or bad. But if he wasn't a loner, by nature, merely by circumstance, then in another age he would have sought out kindred spirits and become greater still. 
Yet what exactly was Noah supposed to do? How could he have been an influence for good in a society bent on evil? Was he really meant to speak in an age when no one would listen? Some people don't listen even to the voice of God himself. We had an example of this just two chapters earlier when God warned Cain of the danger of his violent feelings towards Abel. Why are you so furious? Why are you depressed? Sin is crouching at the door. It lusts after you, but you can dominate it. Yet Cain didn't listen and went on to murder his brother. If God speaks and men do not listen, how can we criticize Noah for not speaking when all the evidence suggests that they wouldn't have listened to him either? The Talmud raises this very question in a different context. In the years leading to the Babylonian conquest and the destruction of the first temple, another lawless age. Here's what the Talmud in Shabbat 55a has to say. Rabbi Acha Braid Rabbi Hanina said, Never did a favorable word go forth from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed be he, of which he retracted for evil, except on that occasion. The Holy One, blessed be he, had said to the angel Gabriel, Go and set a mark of ink on the foreheads of the righteous, that the destroying angels may have no power over them, and a mark of blood on the foreheads of the wicked, that the destroying angels may have power on them. The attribute of justice said before the Holy One, blessed be he, Ribbona Shalom, sovereign of the universe, how are these different from those? God replied, these are completely righteous and those are completely wicked. What do you say? How are they different? The angel of justice replied, sovereign of the universe, they had the power to protest, that that is the righteous had the power to protest, but they didn't, said God. But it was fully known to them that had they protested, they wouldn't have been listened to. Ribbono Shalom, sovereign of the universe, said justice. It may have been revealed to you, but it was, was it revealed to them? And at that point, God accepted. Hence, it is written that they began, the destruction began, at the elders, at the sanctuary, at Mikdashi. And then they began at the elders, which were before the house. And Rav Joseph said, read not Mikdashi, but Mekudashai, this refers to the people who fulfilled the Torah from Aleph to Tav. In other words, in the days of the first temple when it was destroyed, even the righteous were punished, not just the wicked. According to this passage, even the righteous were punished at the time of the destruction of the temple because they did not protest the actions of their contemporaries. God objects to this claim. Why punish them for their failure to protest when it was clear that had they done so, no one would have listened? Justice replies, this may be clear to angels, it may be clear to God, or translate this to mean this may be clear in hindsight. But at the time, no human could have been sure that his words wouldn't have had an impact. Justice asks, how can you be sure you'll fail if you never try? According to the Talmud, God reluctantly agreed, hence the strong principle. When bad things are happening in society, when corruption, violence, and injustice prevail, it is our duty to register a protest, even if it seems likely that it will have no effect. Why? Because that's what moral integrity demands. Silence may be taken as consent. And besides, we can never be sure that no one will listen. Morality demands 
that we ignore probability and focus on possibility. Perhaps someone will take notice and change his or her ways, and that perhaps is enough. And this idea didn't appear for the first time in the Talmud. It's already stated explicitly in the book of Ezekiel, because this is what God says to Yechezkel Hanavi, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, at least they will know that a prophet has been among them. God tells the prophet, in other words, to speak regardless of whether people will listen. So one way of reading the story of Noah is as a failure of leadership. Noah was righteous but not a leader. He was a good man who had no influence on his environment. There are, to be sure, other ways of reading the story, but this seems to me the most straightforward. If so, then Noah now becomes the third in the series of failures of responsibility. Adam and Eve failed to take personal responsibility. They said, in so many words, it wasn't me. Cain refused to take moral responsibility. He said, am I my brother's keeper? Noah failed the test of collective responsibility. This way of interpreting the story, if it's correct, entails a strong conclusion. We know that Judaism involves collective responsibility. Kol Yisrael, Arabian Zebazer, we're all all Jews are responsible for one another. But it may be that being human also involves collective responsibility. Not only are Jews responsible for one another, so are we all, regardless of our faith or lack of it. So at any rate Maimonides argued, although Nachmanides disagreed. Hasidim put this in a very simple way. They called Noah a tzaddik impulse, a righteous man in a fur coat. There are two ways of keeping warm on a cold night. You can wear a fur coat, or you can light a fire. Wear a fur coat, and you warm only yourself. Light a fire, and you warm others. We are supposed to light a fire. Noah was a good man who wasn't a leader. Was he, after the flood, haunted by guilt? Did he think of the lives he might have saved if only he had spoken out, whether to his contemporaries or to God? We can't be sure. The text is suggestive, but not conclusive. But it does seem that the Torah sets a high standard for the moral life. It isn't enough to be righteous. If that means turning our backs on a society that is guilty of wrongdoing, we must take a stand. We must protest. We must register dissent, even if the probability of changing minds is small. That's because the moral life is a life we share with others. We are, in some sense, responsible for the society of which we are a part. It isn't enough to be good. We have to encourage others to be good. There are times when each of us must lead.